fall into the theology bit. Welcome to The Theology Pit. This is theology out of Pittsburgh and not like a bottomless pit because you know what they say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. But here, here at The Theology Pit, man, we have, we're, we're like the Niagara Falls. Not the Niagara Falls like if it ever dries up, but I, I think that might be happening soon actually. But we are like the, you know, the Niagara Falls where water's just constantly flowing over. There's so much stuff. And what I've done, what The Theology Pit is, is it is a mug. Well, let's, you know what, let's go with a, uh, like a, like a big size, like Slurpee type mug or something like that. And and what I'm doing is I'm dipping it into the Niagara Falls and I'm saying, all right, here, this is what I got for you. Uh, In um, theology, a lot of times that's what it feels like. We are sitting in a Sunday school class right now this semester and the topic that the person is going over, it's really like they dip a ladle in the ocean and are trying to explain the, the ocean with this ladle of water and saying, you see, it, the ocean's like this, but a lot bigger. And a lot of times, that's what I feel like I'm doing in the theology pit. I feel like I am just, I'm giving you this tiny sliver of theology that's kind of weaving its way through uh, salvation. And since we are sticking on mostly the aspect of justification within salvation, how one is made right with God, that we have to leave a lot of stuff out. And because we have to leave a lot of stuff out, it can seem like I'm neglecting, you know, parts of the faith. I know that a lot of times in the theology pit, I don't quote the Bible a lot. I don't give you a lot of addresses. I don't give you a lot of the addresses that back up some of the ideas through history that have gone out. And there's a reason why I do this. It's not just because I'm lazy. It's because in the theology pit, I don't want there to be a lot of presuppositions. Now, I know that, you know, in this particular series, there are presuppositions here, but if I get into too much Bible stuff without even going over certain types of biblical interpretations or biblical hermeneutical disciplines, then I may say, well, they use this particular passage. And you might go look at that passage and say, that doesn't have anything to do with it. What what are they talking about? And then it's like, well, no, they're actually using this particular hermeneutic in order to come to this understanding. So we are at part 19 in salvation here, and this has been really fun, but I'm, again, I'm stepping on toes. I know that I am going to be talking about Arminianism today, or at least Jacob Arminius and what's called, you know, quote unquote, classical Arminianism. Now, like I talked about before in either, either in the pit of conception or in the last theology pit about there just being so many different flavors and varieties within denominations today that the name of the church or the surname of the church uh, might not be what they hold to. I mean, you may have a Presbyterian church 
that would be people would say, well, it's Presbyterian, so it's it's a Calvinist church, or a Baptist church would say, well, that's an Arminian church, and then if I give you like one definition of what Calvinism is, or Arminianism is, or Lutheran is, or even Roman Catholicism, in what it is, in in defining it, and then you go to the other ones, and you're just like, well, that's not right. So I have to stay within this time period, and I understand that that can get confusing at times, but I think that if we understand these the the genesis of where all the different parts come from in theology here, whenever you are evaluating maybe your own church or evaluating other churches or or what people say, even if they say, well, you know, I'm a you know, a Reformed Southern Baptist from the non-heretical Western division from the 1984 split, then you can just be like, oh, okay, then I understand what you're saying by that. And then they say, yeah, we believe blah, 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 blah. And they start nailing all these things that it's not Baptist. It's not Reformed. It's not anything. And you're like, you're like, wait a minute, that's something completely different than what that is. And you'll be able to think, wow, that's completely different. That's not what you say it is, but you're, you're, you're just using that, those titles you know, for things like, like if I was going to start my own, um, denomination, whatever it was, it wouldn't matter. I would put the word biblical in front of it because that would then make people say, you know, oh, well, He's saying that he's biblical. It's obviously biblical. It has to be biblical because biblical is right in the name. You know, it's it's a biblical church. Or, you know, we're not a partial gospel church. We are a full gospel church. We're not like those other partial gospel churches or the quarter gospel churches. No, 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 no. We are full gospel. And, I mean, all this stuff. Every time I see a church that has, you know, a new name, well, we are the, the first Presbyterian church, the second Presbyterian church, the third Presbyterian church. I live in Western Pennsylvania. We have a lot of history here, and we actually have a town that has, it was in the Guinness Book of World Records for having as many churches and bars in one location. It was just, they're crazy. I mean, you have a, you know, a Greek Orthodox church. Um, there are Russian Orthodox churches. There are Polish Catholic. There are Italian Catholic. There are um, Slovakian uh, Catholic. I mean, you have, you, it just runs the gamut. There was a place I was driving through one time. I can't remember what it was. I don't, I, I'm trying to think that it was Evan City, where they had, I think it was a Church of God, the first Church of God that was across the street from like the second Church of God. I mean, the the different denominational splits around here are, are like a Starbucks. Like you can like leave a Starbucks and run into another Starbucks. Like it's, I mean, it's that dense with, with churches and the different kinds of churches and the different splits. But what do they believe? What do they think? You know, what, what is it? Well, when it comes to justification and salvation, these subtle nuances are kind of you know, where they fall. So when I talk about Calvinism, I talk about Arminianism, whatever I'm talking about, please know that I am doing my best to kind of give you this historical understanding and the different terminologies of what things actually are so that you can then evaluate for yourself and say, oh, well, I know that they're saying this, but they actually kind of hold to that. Now, in talking about um, Jacob Arminius here, and talking about um, Arminianism, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that for like the first half hour. I'm gonna discuss that, and maybe a little, 
maybe even a little longer into it. We'll see how much we get through. And then I am going to finish up today with the governmental view of the atonement, not because I believe that Arminianism holds to the governmental view of the atonement. I'm doing it because historically this is the next step that, that came. Um, Arminianism allows for the governmental view of the atonement, just as Anabaptism allows for the governmental view. And Protestantism allows for the governmental view. Whenever you have a particular view, and the governmental view is, I want to say it's not held to positively by the majority of the church. And because it may have negative connotations, I don't want to associate it with um, a a particular belief system within Christianity. I don't want to poison the well, so to speak. Now, I'm already guilty of poisoning the well within this entire uh, series here. In my explanation of um, justification by faith, um, when we went over the fides qua creditor and the fides qua creditor, and you know we discussed what that meant and what justification by the faithfulness of Christ actually is. And if you're new to the podcast, you're like, what do you mean that justification by the faithfulness of Christ? Wait, no, it's justification by faith. Yeah, I, I know, I know. Um, but I articulated it in such a way that we are... Justification is that you are forensically declared righteous by God and that there, there's a difference between a forensic declaration where God speaks it and says it and a sanative view where God has poured something in you or God has put something in you or there's, the action is located in you and not in God, that there was you know a, a distinction within there. And by really stressing that, whenever we get to things like anabaptism— or we get to things like you know, Presbyterianism, which may have given lip service to it. A majority of the Protestant denominations do. I understand that. I don't find it to be wrong. Once again, I find it to be incomplete. It's like they almost have it, okay? I mean, I and I've made the argument that Luther really didn't even understand what he stumbled upon. He didn't understand the implications of it. He understood how to explain it. He understood what it meant. But internalizing that and expressing it, it's sort of like the concept of free speech in America. It's like free speech is great. And a lot of people think that free speech is wonderful until they're offended by it. And then they're like, you shouldn't be able to say that. That's that's hate speech. You can't say those things, you know, like like that. And all of a sudden free speech goes out the window. Well, we don't want free speech if it means that. Um, a lot of times justification by faith, this particular definition that I've given it, that doctrine can be like that. It's like, oh, well, justification by faith. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. We love that because we love what that means. Oh, wait, does that mean that even if you reject it, it still applies to you and you're still a Christian? Mm, you know what? I really don't like the, that other group that rejects that. So they're not Christians, but we are and we hold to this doctrine. Or if you don't hold to this doctrine, then you're not a Christian. And it's like, no, 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 no. The, the, the baseline of the doctrine, the axiom of the doctrine, the truth of the doctrine is it doesn't matter what you think about it. This is the way God has done it. Okay, this is just truth. Whether you agree with it or not, whether everybody agrees with it or everybody rejects it, it doesn't change that fact. 
And the doctrine of justification, as we've defined it here, is um, simply telling us it's what God says about us, that that's what the doctrine is. Anything more than that goes in the realm of sanctification, not in justification. And justification, sanctification, and glorification are all part of salvation. So, you know, we will look and, you know, this will get down the road if we ever get into things like looking at, you know, can you lose your salvation, perseverance of the saints, like those sort of things. That'll come up more. But in focusing on justification, the implications on there are, you know, in a, in a way absurd. It, it is that, you know, it, when you explain it to people and they're just like, so what? You're saying that I don't have to do anything, that it's not up to me at all, that it's just all God, like, you know, completely in this way. And so I can I can just be in my sin. I can just go on sinning and do whatever. Well, if you ever get that response, then you know that you've explained the the gospel correctly because that's the reaction that Paul would constantly get. So if you're explaining the gospel as well as St. Paul did, then you should get the same reaction every time that you explain it, that people are just like, what are you talking about? No, that's backwards. I've never heard a church say that before. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, understandably why. Um and, and I think that I've gone through a lot of that in why the different denominations through history, as we looked at them, you know, believe a different way and those outside influences and, and that sort of thing. One of the biggest influences, of course, is the Bible. You know, um, when we talk about justification by faith and people understand that as being, oh, what that means is that as long as I have faith, I am justified. I have faith in God. I am therefore justified because I have faith. It's what I've done by believing, by having faith, by something done on my part. Therefore, I am justified. And, you know, what we've talked about goes against that. It's like, no, you know, not even that. Uh, you, you actually, your, your response is sanctification, not justification. That's not what justifies you. But you may say the Bible clearly says justified by faith. I mean, how many times in, in, you know, the first couple chapters of Galatians, justified by faith, justified by faith. And I think we went over, you know, the, the, you know, Galatians, that passage and, and, you know, what that meant in, um, in, in Romans, you know, uh, chapter four, when we talked, when we went back and looked at Abraham and, or we use Abram at the time and, and all that, and, and how we were to interpret that and how we're to interpret this and, and why it should be the faithfulness of Christ as it's translated. But, you know, I don't, I, I don't fault people for reading their Bible and believing how they interpret their Bible and what their Bible says. I mean, it, you look at it and you're like, well, this clearly says justified by faith, which means that there's something I have to do. At least I have to have faith at the very least, even if I say, well, that faith comes from God, that faith is not for me. So God gave me that faith. So God's still doing everything, but I have to have this faith and nurture it or respond or pick up the phone when he calls or whatever it is. And my faith enables me to do that. However, they want to look at that. Now, with the Roman Catholic system, you have to understand that they had somewhat the same type of thing going on. They were trying to be biblical. And I know a lot of people are like, no, they don't read the Bible. They don't follow the Bible. They, they just believe the church and what the church tells them. And it's the church and scripture and blah, blah, blah. But the church overpowers scripture. And, you know, I hear that a lot. But listen to this logic here. Let's say that you are having your own philosophy that you have now about the Bible. Okay. And about it being the infallible word of God. And that, you know, it is 
you know, good for faith and practice, for rebuking, for reproofing, for correcting, whole nine yards. Okay. You are, and, and everyone's like, well, yeah, that's how I hold to it now. Okay. Let's pick you up and let's put you somewhere between the fifth century and the 15th century. Okay. The Bible that you're, and we'll give, even give you access to the Bible. You are able to read the Bible. You have a copy of the Bible. And unless you're a translator today, don't make the argument of, you know, well, I would have found a better translation. No, no, no. This is the translation that you have. It's the Latin Vulgate. It's it, You're not reading the original Greek. Unless you're reading the original Greek now, don't make that argument because you're not. You're, you're reading it. You're the average Joe. This is what you have. You're reading the Latin Vulgate. And where it says in the Vulgate, we have the word repent. You know, repent and believe. You know, re- repent, you know, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Like, the, so... In the Vulgate, St. Jerome translated it, not repent, but do penance, which is similar to repenting. Repenting is turning from your sin. It is an action that you're doing. You are to walk away from your sin. You are to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I am turning. I'm doing something else. It's It's an action that you are doing something else, okay? Do penance is by doing penance, you're doing an action, Okay, you are saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else. Do penance. Well, what do I do? For a thousand years, you understand salvation based on the Bible to be do penance. Okay, and doing penance and understanding, you know, that, okay, it's something I have to do, which means that, well, I need to be holy for Christ is holy you know, that stuff. Well, how do I become holy? And, you know, we kind of went through the whole thing with, you know, eating the flesh, drinking the blood and in communion, um, you know, that the way we get God's grace is sanitive. It's from the, um, not only the sacraments, but from, you know, penance is one of the sacraments of, you know, going to confession, doing penance, like, you know, all that stuff. So you are staying totally biblical with this. Okay. You're staying totally good with it. And, and, and you're saying this to church and church is reading this and saying, yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, if, if this is the way that God has it, this is the way that we should do it. Then let's put in as many things as possible for people to do to merit as much of God's grace as we possibly can. That's a fantastic idea. It's a biblical idea from that time period. The problem that they had in the 15th century and that, well, the 16th century, I should say, with you know, when Luther came about, with 15th century also, with you know Erasmus and uh, Tinsdale, is that they were wanting because of the humanists and because of the scholastics. Remember the ad fonts battle cry, going back to the sources, wanted to go back to the Greek, and they started saying, "Hey, this shouldn't be translated, you know, uh, uh, do penance. This should be translated repent." And that's what kind of got that ball rolling, why they said, oh, my goodness, you know, remember how the, the, the structure of the church was at the time, how political, and it was like a governmental system, and, yeah, you got money flowing through it, that's a way that money's going out, and all those problems. Of course, they're going to say, no, the translation has to be authorized, and it can't, you know, I mean, all those problems. Okay, all that to say that just because I've poisoned the well here by explaining the way that Luther explained the doctrine of justification and the way that the Augsburg Confession spells it out and the way that we are to understand that it's by the faithfulness of Christ that we that God's grace is unmerited favor, that we are saved by grace for Jesus Christ's sake through faith. And it's through his faith. Faith is, is passive on our part. It is totally through his faith. Our receiving of faith 
the fides qua creditor, faith by which we believe, is not different from the fides quae creditor, the faith which we believe, our, our profession of it, that that is not what saves us because then that would make it sanitive. It is God declaring, you are righteous. And as it says in, um, uh, I, think it's in I think it's in Romans 4, that, you know, God declares the ungodly righteous. And so because of that, you know, I, I feel that we might want to look at what these people are doing later on, what the, you know, the, the, the Renaissance movement was, the, the, the scholastics and the humanists and the, um, the Calvinists. And as we're going to see, you know, and even, even the Anabaptists that, you know, just because they don't understand that they're doing their best to stay biblical. And I'm not going to fault them for not understanding something because I know that this is a difficult concept to grasp. It was difficult for me to, to, to fully grasp and articulate. Um, and I was, I was raised, you know, Anglican and, and Lutheran in, in both of those traditions. And when it, when it comes to Calvinism, and Arminianism, to be honest, I never even heard those terms until I was about 26. Um, it was totally, totally foreign to me. It was a, a new world that I had to look into and be like, really, you guys, man, you, you got a lot of issues here. But um, I, I guess that's why I can take such a somewhat objective view on these things and, and say, okay, here's what one and the other says. So when I'm going over Jacob Arminius's understanding of justification, I'm going to give him grace and say, if Armenians believe this, I'm giving them grace because I understand why. You know, I have never had someone articulate the doctrine of justification from these different traditions to me the way that Luther explained it and Luther understood it. A lot of times, um, people, they just, they just like to fight, and so they, want, they don't want to know so much why a Baptist believes what a Baptist believes. What they want to know is, from me at least, what they want to know is why are they wrong and how can I prove it? And I'm like, no, nope, I don't start there. I don't, I don't do that. If you want to start anywhere, I'll tell you why you're wrong and we'll work from there. Um, you need to look at your own theology and you need to look at yourself first. And then you need to look at their theology and ask yourself why it's right. And you need to be able to articulate what they believe and defend what they believe. And if you can fully articulate it and fully defend it to the point where if you were in a group that believed those sort of things, they would think that you believe that and will say, you know, I mean, I've been able to talk with Roman Catholics and they know that I'm a Protestant. Um, and, and I would, we would talk for an hour or so or more about the Roman Catholic faith. And I would be able to articulate it better than they will. And subtle nuances and just the, the theology and, and explaining it passionately and very rationally. And then they'll ask me, well, you know all this stuff. Why aren't you a Catholic? And then I can understand the doors are open. I can, I can explain to them why I'm not. And and, and the reasoning behind it, but they wouldn't be willing to listen because they figure, well, you just don't know. And a lot of times I think that that's how it is between Calvinists and Arminians. Um, I figure that not only do they not know about each other, um, they don't know about the subtle nuances, but sometimes they do know about each other 
And it's just as bad because they then accuse each other of different things because they don't understand what the Anglicans think. They don't understand what the Lutherans think. They don't understand what the Catholics think. They don't understand what the Eastern Orthodox think. They don't understand what the early church thought. They don't understand how these things came about, and they don't care. A lot of times, if they want to go into history, what they'll do is say, well, here's my belief. I'm going to go find things in history, proof text history, and then I'm going to bring it up. And, you know, and, and that's problematic. So, you know, I guess all that to say, I didn't mean to poison the well in doing this. So let's, just like I said before, the Anabaptists throw out all history that we've learned so far in the theology pit. Let's throw out right now the understanding that we have of the doctrine of justification by faith being the way that I've articulated it in the theology pit. And let's just think about it the way the majority of the Protestant church believes that I have to have faith. It's I'm justified by faith, and the faith is, of course, my faith that I'm justified by. If we start from that point, this will be a lot more palatable and it will be a lot more acceptable than if we, you know, if I just kind of started talking and, and went off and you're just like listening to it and saying, oh, well, I, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. You know, that, that sort of thing. So a uh, little background on Jacob Arminius. Uh, some people may not know this, but Jacob Arminius was a Calvinist. Um, he lived between uh, 1560 and 1609. And remember, John Calvin kind of, you know, took the reins in the... Um, uh, 1530s. And so, you know, his teachings were going out. So, um, before Arminius was born, um, John Calvin was teaching Calvinism. This had been around, you know, for a while, by the time he was learning at least a generation. Okay. Um, Westminster confession wasn't, uh, articulated yet. Um, uh, the Baptist church didn't start until, uh, 1609, the, the beginning of it. Um, so we can kind of get this timeline of when Jacob Arminius is, is living and, and, and what he's thinking, what he's seeing, what he's experiencing. Okay. We're still in roughly in the same time period that we've been talking about the last few theology pits. So uh, hopefully that'll get you up to, up to speed with, with a lot of it. But, um, he, uh, studied, and he had influences from uh, Luther, Zwingli, the Anabaptists, and Calvinism. Okay, he had the benefit of all that. Now, reading over Arminius's works, the man is very smart, and the man is very, very deep in his understanding. He's very thorough. When you read through his understanding of justification, he doesn't just come out and tell you, this is what I think justification is. He unpacks as much about it as why and, and breaks it apart. It was, it's really, really fascinating to read because you could see how his mind is working. He's someone who you can under uh, Luther, for example, you understood Luther's thought process by knowing his personality um, you could see the way he reacted to other people, the way he wrote, the way he did things. Arminius 
you can really see his thought process by how analytically he breaks things out. And I appreciate that. I really do. I like that breakdown. I like that when I'm saying this, this is exactly what I mean by it. I don't mean these other things over here. And he doesn't even start it like that. He says, okay, here's all these things here. Here's this section right here and this section over here. Okay, this section doesn't apply to what we're talking about because it's just not pertinent to what we mean. So we're going to come to this section over here only. Now, out of this section, here are the subtle nuances between the two. They both have merit. But for what we're discussing, it's in this part, and then later it will be in this part. Like, I just, I really appreciate how he breaks down all the stuff that he, he talks about. I think he's a, a very good read, a very strong Christian, a very good theologian in that sense. I don't, uh, of course, uh, as you know, um, I don't agree with all of his conclusions. I don't have to. I can appreciate the method that he uses. And I think that it's it's a good method. And I think it's a method that um, I, I wish a lot of Christians would uh, incorporate because it's, it's very, very good. Um, his controversy happened, uh, at, um, uh, Amsterdam in, um, like 1591 with his discussion of, uh, Romans seven and, um, yeah, Romans seven fourteen. he was sort of speaking on a uh, man living under the law and convicted of sin by the Holy spirit, but yet he wasn't presently regenerated. Um, now if, if you hear something like that, at this time, you have to bring up our old pal Pelagius. And a lot of people say that this is Pelagianism, but it's not what Pelagius, it's not what Pelagius was condemned for. Okay. And we went over what Pelagian's beliefs were and, or, or Pelagius's beliefs were, I always get that mixed up. I should just say the Pelagian belief system. And when you look at it, it's almost like people are saying, well, you know, there was a theologian who believed that every time the clouds got thick and dark, rain would come. And his name was Pelagius. Do you believe that happens? <laughs> well, I guess you're a Pelagius. You're a Pelagian also. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like that. It's like, well, no, just because I hold to something that might be similar or might be exact to what Pelagius held to. That doesn't mean I'm a Pelagian because that's not what, you know, got him in trouble. Like, you know, what got him in trouble was him talking about, well, I can't, um, I mean, I can't say that, um, you know, original, that there is such a thing as original sin because, uh, you know, God, makes people evil. Like that's ridiculous. So, you know, there's a, a different understanding. His understanding of grace was general revelation that that is what grace is. It, it's not even like it was a sanative or a forensic thing, completely separate. And theoretically somebody could live the perfect life, you know, that sort of thing. So that's really what got him in the trouble. And, but like I said before, you know, what he was teaching about like free will, and man being able to choose and this. So I think, I, I really think that the problem was more with his, uh, his anthropology as I, as I talked about is where his misunderstanding was. Um, 
with with what he believed that kind of went down that road. But when it came to the concept of, you know, free will and really how much free will, like th- those sort of things, that's generally what everybody believed at that time. It's not something that came up. It's not, it's, it's like, you know, with anything uh, within theology, if it's not challenged by someone or if it's not, you know, questioned and if people aren't thinking about it, they're, they're not really going to think anything like pro or con. Like, you know, it, it would be like, you know, if you went back in time and asked people, well, you know, do you believe in free will? And they'd be like, I, yeah, I guess. Why? You know, I mean, they wouldn't even define it. They wouldn't even want it defined. They would, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be something that they thought about, you know? I mean, they, you know, it's like saying, well, you know, did Jesus die on the cross for you? Well, yeah. Well, do you believe that he specifically died for a vicarious penal substitutionary understand? They feel like, what are you talking about? Christ died for, for us. You know, he died for the whole world. Like they, that type of category just isn't there. So you need to understand what the objections are before you can continue on. Now, Arminius on justification he would say that justification signifies rectitude or agreement with right reason. Okay. It's a quality or an act, but the quality in hearing of in a subject and the act produced by an efficient cause. Okay. And then an act that is occupied either in one infusing the quality of the righteous righteousness or acquiring it for him or number two, forming a judgment on a person and his acts or it can also be understood as pronouncing sentence on them. And like, if you're sitting there thinking, Oh my goodness, what did you just say? What did you just read? What does that even mean? I know it can be difficult to say, but this is the type of thing where I read it and I look at it and I'm like, Oh, I love that. He broke everything down. I love that. He is talking about like, okay, here's the things that it can mean. Here's the things that he's saying. Here's the things that are, that are going on. Okay. Um, he's, more or less saying in this way, justification when used for the act of a judge is either purely the imputation of righteousness through mercy from the throne of grace in Christ, the propitiation made to a sinner, but who is a believer. So those subtle nuances is what takes us there. And he's saying that in opposition to a a, a gratia infusa, a, a, you know, grace being infused, a sanative view. But what's interesting is, again, he is looking at it and saying it's an imputation, but it's in someone who is a believer and it's something that they have to accept. It's, it's like he's saying that grace is imputed to you and it goes into you and that's what justifies you rather than saying the declara- the declaration itself is what justifies you. Okay. It's, it's subtle. I know, but it's understanding a sanative view and a forensic view because if you don't understand that, then you don't understand the, the, the difference between what Luther is saying and what the Roman Catholics are saying. Now, he even goes on to talk about what the Roman Catholics say 
which is interesting because he denies that. But we'll talk about that maybe a little bit more on the other side of this break. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. All right, so I would encourage you to um, go and read for yourself the Arminian Confession of 1621. I think it's a good one, along with, you know, Westminster Confession and, um, you know, with the Schleidheim Confession, all, all these, they are good to have a background. They are, they are good to know. And you can see exactly what Arminius is talking about and Arminians are talking about and, and those sort of things. Because, you know, Arminius, like his, his big ideas were that, you know, man did not have to live in bondage to sin. Um, Romans seven fourteen, you know, he talked about that. Uh, he preached on justification by faith in uh, contradiction to works, um, rather uh, than focusing on eternal decrees. That's part of the thing that got him in trouble because, um, you know, when we looked at the Westminster Confession, like you know, the the first things that were was talked about, I, I believe, was God, and you know, the eternal decrees are a big deal. But he would you know, focus on more what Luther would find, you know, what Luther would say is the hinge point of the gospel is justification. That is where the gospel lies. Okay. And so he would focus on that and they didn't like that. He wasn't falling lockstep into them. Um, so he gradually developed opinions on grace, predestination and free will that looked different or that were different from, you know, what the Calvinist understanding was at, at the time. So when we go to 1621, remember he died in 1609, but his teachings and his principles went on to spur um, this confession and, and what they're talked about. Now, there's going to be a lot of things in this confession that you read, because when we get to another branch of Arminianism known as, as the Wesleyan holiness movement that they believe that you are completely sanctified. You no longer sin. Um, they get it from here. Um, the Baptists get stuff from here. Uh, it's, it's understandable in chapter 18 of the Arminian confession. This is on the promises of God that are performed in this life to those who are converted and are believers. That is election to glory, adoption, justification, sanctification, and sealing. Okay. Chapter 18, that's what it's, it's dealing with. So it's dealing with the doctrine of justification. So if we go down to section three, it says these are directly connected with three other acts, justification, sanctification, and finally, uh, the unique act of sealing by the Holy Spirit. Justification is a merciful, gracious, and indeed full remission of all guilt before God to truly repenting and believing sinners. I was with him, you know, up to, and you may have been like, oh, okay, I'm with him up to there, up, you know, up to that point. And then you're like, oh, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, no, he's saying that 
if you truly repent and you truly believe, then you have full remission of sins and guilt, okay, of all guilt before God. All right, and, you know, and he says, through and because of Jesus Christ, apprehended by true faith, indeed, even more, the liberal and bountiful imputation of faith for righteousness. For indeed, in the judgment of God, we cannot obtain it except by the pure grace of God and only by faith in Jesus Christ, but nevertheless a living one operating through love without any merit of our own works. And this is the meaning of the article of the creed when we say, I believe in the remission of sins. So what you're having here is he's doing his best to explain this. And like I said before, if I wouldn't have poisoned the well, we would see this and a lot of us would say, yeah, I agree with it. But there seems to be that qualification. And again, this is my argument with a lot of Protestant denominations that either, you know, don't have a historical background. Um, They claim to have a historical background, but it only goes back 500 years. But they don't have a church history background. They don't have the understanding of um, the sacramental system. They don't, you know, they have from you know, what the humanists called, you know, the, the middle ages there, because those were such low times that everyone was, you know, not as smart as they were. The two peaks are between, you know, the, uh, the new Testament and them, you know, um, roughly what we're going to see with the, uh, restorationist churches, the way that they thought that those are the two peaks, the original church and the restorationist churches, but, um, and everything else in between is just, you know, just butt kiss unless we need it. And we got to go to it to, to proof text things to prove our points. And, you know, if that's the case, then it's problematic, but um, it's problematic in other ways, but you know, it, it has these qualifications here. Okay. That we are, you know, uh, it, we full remission of sins. It's, it's merciful and gracious. Okay. Full remission of, of all guilt before God uh, through and because of Jesus Christ only, but it's apprehended by true faith. So you have to have true faith. I mean, if I was to look at this and I really wanted to break it apart and I really wanted to get legalistic with it and form my own, you know, uh, church out of this, I think necessarily I would get like the holiness, uh, movement. I think that that is the natural progression that I have to be, completely pure. I mean, move to the Puritan uh, realm. This, it makes a lot of sense on that, uh, on that level for indeed the judgment of God, we cannot obtain it except by the pure grace of God and only by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of statements of faith or confession in Protestant churches will say that, you know, you have to believe in Christ alone, or only, and they stress that so much because they would think that everybody else is trusting in all their works or everything else, but no, you have to say it's alone. And I've been in, um, churches, I don't know if I told this story before, um, in a congregational church where, you know, we were voting on new members coming in and one of the people had a Roman Catholic background 
and another one didn't. And I mean, there were yeah maybe 16 people that we are voting on for membership and you vote on them all at once, but there comes a time when they're introduced and they've already, you know, spoken with the elders. They've already given their testimonies. Um, they've, you know, professed their faith, like, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then they leave the room and the congregation is able to ask the elders questions about them, if any. And, um, and then the people, you know, they vote on them as a whole. And then the people are brought back in and you know, welcomed into the church. But, I've never seen people question before. They just accepted it and said, okay, hey, the elders say these people are good. We're good with it. One time I did was with this person who's a Roman Catholic before. And someone said, does this person understand that it is by faith alone in Christ alone that they are saved? Do they understand that? And what really struck me about that is I don't know if the Roman Catholic Church would say that, you know, outside of Christ, there is salvation. They wouldn't say that. Of course, it's, you know, Jesus Christ is the only way uh, to be saved. It's, it's, it's his blood. I think that that's, it, that's pretty strong indication of that within Roman Catholic. I mean, say some people want to argue with me and say, no, you don't understand them. I'm like, I, I think I do uh, pretty well. But if you want to say that, doesn't matter. Because here's the real sticking point in my story. There was another person whose testimony was that uh, his grandfather was a Christian and really had a good life and a good faith, and he passed away. And, you know, at his funeral, he was thinking about it, you know, what a great life he had and how wonderful things were and that he was a Christian. And, well, I want to be a Christian, too, so I'm joining this church. And nobody questioned whether that person believed in yeah, faith alone through Christ alone. Like it, that, that wasn't even an issue. And I'm like, that's more of a concern to me than the Roman Catholic aspect of it. And that's how we can get so turned around by, you know, th- this type of understanding when we look at stuff like this and say, oh, okay, so we have to say only faith because if it is indeed my faith that I'm exercising, that's what saves me. I'm turning my faith into a work, but I'm not going to uh, admit that. I'm, I'm, because I'm going to say, well, no. It says here that you know it's, it's faith, not works, which means faith is not a work. So as much faith as I do, I can do anything that I want as long as I call it faith. It's not a work. Um, but you look at that, and you look at the the Bible, the translations that we read, and and that understanding, and, and we say, no, it's by my faith that you know I am saved. Um, and so that your faith is very, very important. So, you know, in section three of chapter 18 of um, the Armenian Confession of 1621, you can see why churches that come out of a Anabaptist, Baptist, Arminian understanding, Wesleyan understanding, have such a strong emphasis on faith and behavior and and the reason for it being so closely tied into your salvation, even if they say it's not, they sort of act differently. And it's it, sometimes it might be a bait and switch. I think they're a little squishy on it. I think that they, if they were honest, um, you know, they would go full-blown uh, Wesleyan, but I don't think that they do, or, or at least holiness uh, movement. But I don't think they do because some of them are honest enough to say, you know what, I don't, it just doesn't sound right. It just doesn't you know, sound that, yeah, that, that, that good, um, in, in what it is. Okay. Um, 
section six says here, um, it's, it's a bit long, so I got to look at what I, uh, what section of it I, I wanted to bring up. So, all right. So in section six here, what it's saying is that, uh, and God is occupied with these kind of gracious acts towards all those and only those, although unequally and in different measure who truly believe and repent. So if you don't truly believe and repent, then this isn't applied to you. Again, this is a sanative in a way because you have to believe and repent or as Catholics would say, do penance. So you have to re- believe and repent. And, and as you can see, they're starting to become a parallel with the way the Roman Catholics think and the way this is, you know, and, and the way that this is thinking in, in that sense. And I hate, I hate to say that. I hate because you're, you know, it's, it's making me sound like I think that, you know, Arminians and Jacob Arminius are the same as, as the Roman Catholic idea. And in a way I am, but I don't mean it sounds so bad. I don't mean it sounds so pejorative. This isn't, like I've said before, you know, um, the proper doctrine or perfect doctrine is not necessary for salvation, but it is necessary for the health of the church. And this is an example of it. But here he says that there are three kinds of people. Okay. There are those who will call novices. Okay. They were recently converted to the faith and together with a sincere assent, bring indeed a serious and deliberate will to obey the divine will. And remember when we talked about faith, we broke it up between notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. There were those, they think they have to know something, they have to, you know, assent to it, agree with it, and they have to trust in it. Okay. But when persecution comes, Afflictions and other dangerous temptations arise, which this kind is not able to resist. It immediately grows weak once again and utterly dies. So here you have somebody who um, God has justified them and, you know, they, you know, were not able to do the right things to maintain it. And, you know, they fell away. And uh, these three things, it kind of reminds me of the um, the parable of the sower. And I think that that parallel is supposed to be in your mind while you're looking at this. Um, those who now number two is those who remain constant for some time in the true faith and in a certain holy purpose and demonstrate for a while the truth of their faith by good and holy works. But finally, whether by enticements of the world or flesh or the flesh or Satan or conquered and broken by some violent tyranny, they defect and desert from the faith. All right. And number three. Those who either without any defection or interruption continually persevere to the end in that godly purpose and in holy works or, or who have fallen again or even often departed, having once again lapsed or fallen again, are led to serious repentance and so being restored, which means you can backslide, fall out of grace and then repent and come back in. Okay, so it goes on to sum it up. Therefore, the two former orders of believers are indeed truly elect, adopted, and justified, but not absolutely. Only for a time, namely as far and as long as they are finally and thoroughly such, that is, according to that which we read in the gospel. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. So God is giving you the means of salvation. Again, he's not really, he's making you save a bull. That's what Arminius is saying. 
okay, that the scripture clearly teaches that you are savable from, you know, within this construct. And it's Jacob Arminius saying this, not Arminians, because like I said in the beginning, not all Arminians believe the same thing. A lot of them believe that, you know, uh, in perseverance of the saints that no, you know, God does the work. He keeps that work going in you and you will be saved. There's all sorts of subtle nuances in there. But what I'm saying is that in this confession, it is saying that justification, making one right with God is temporary. It is only something that God can do with you helping him. He cannot do it on his own. He didn't set it up that way. He just set it up that if you believe and then you quit believing, you're no longer saved. Now, I'm not saying that this gets Calvinists off the hook either, because if a Calvinist, if you would say, well, what about people who believe, but they no longer believe, then they die. Their argument would be, well, they never believed in the first place. They weren't real Christians in the first place. They weren't elect in the first place. Jacob Arminius here, Jacobus Arminius, however you want to say it. I like calling him Jacob. Jacob Arminius would say here that, no, they were true Christians, but then they walked away from it and they gave it up. Part 7 in chapter 18 says, uh, For these are divine acts, sometimes continuous, sometimes interrupted. That is, for as long as often as the requisite conditions, that is, the faith and holiness of the covenant continue to be present within us. But they are interrupted when we no longer stand in our covenant. So, well, I'll, I'll continue reading and I'll go back to that. Or when such acts are committed by us, which can in no way be consistent with true faith and a good conscience, according to Ezekiel, and he quotes Ezekiel here, if the righteous turns away from his righteousness and does iniquity, according to all the iniquities which the wicked do, will he do it and live? All the righteousness which he has done will not be remembered because of his transgressions by which he has transgressed. And because of this, and because of his sins, which he sinned, I say he shall die. And then, end quote. And then the confession goes on to say, this is in keeping with many other sacred testimonies and examples of the same kind. So what he's saying is that it's totally biblical for us to say this. Now, the problem that I have with this is that the covenant that has been made with us, if you go back to the Abrahamic covenant, that covenant was one-sided. Remember I talked about the wedding rings and, um, you know, when, when we're marrying people and the covenant being made that, you know, my ring on my finger is my wife's covenant to me, not my covenant to her. So if the husband or the husband to be, he makes a covenant with her and she doesn't reciprocate it, then he is still bound by that covenant, but she is not because he's on the hook to make it right. And as we see in Genesis, you know, if, if you read Genesis without chapters and you read it all through and you look at that narrative, it's the narrative that God is going to do this all on his own and he is going to make it right because mankind demonstrably cannot do it. 
you just you continually see that in all of Genesis. Man just can't get it right. So God says, I will do it, and I'll do it in, in an impossible way, that there's no way man can even do it. First off, I'll, I'll do it, you know, through a virgin birth. Like, you know, he talks about the seed of the woman, the, the spermatos, the you know, seed of the woman there, and, and bringing it, and gives all the examples of what, you know, uh, the what Christ is going to be like. And, you know, we have all that like uh, typology that's going on in there and that, that sort of thing. And then with Christ that we learn from the Roman Catholic view of the sacramental view of him completing the liturgy on the cross of uh, the four cups of wine to Passover and that fourth cup that's drunk. I mean, a cup of salvation um, and the little Halam song, you know, uh, that was done with the third cup, but then the fourth cup he drinks on there, which is the cup of making uh, making us a, his people. It's he is doing it. It's on his behalf. Everything has to do with Christ and it doesn't have to do with us. And that's kind of the big thing. So, you know, by quoting Ezekiel here and where Ezekiel is talking about, you know, with the law that came later, uh, you know, I mean, I think that there's problems with it. I think it's something we can learn from, but I don't think that has to do with our salvation, but I can understand why they do think that it has to do well uh, with their with, with your salvation, because you look at, you know, the way that that's worded, you look at what it's talking about and it uses the word righteousness and it talks about you being righteous and, and what that is. So when somebody's reading through this Ar- Arminian viewpoint and you have the understanding that justification by faith alone is that it's my faith alone that I am justified through. Well, then that comes back on my behavior, of course. What is my behavior? Sorry, slippers of coffee there. And, you know, it can get, and, and again, we can fall back into that type of system that a lot of Protestants like to criticize the Catholic Church about, where the Catholic Church is reading their Bible, looking at their traditions, looking at their history and saying, this is how we merit God's favor. This is how we do penance because this is what it says. This is what he wants. And on top of it, even though we set up this type of structure and this type of our own Christian law that we have, doesn't that parallel and mirror the, uh, the, the Jewish law? We have the law and we have grace and they're both, they're just, they're, they're opposites because one is what man is doing and the other is what Christ has done. And and we're looking at it like that, but they're two separate structures. We just have to do different things and look at the way God has always done stuff. And it's in this way. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And I think people see that even within Protestantism. And they say, yes, let me do that. This is the problem the Galatians have. This is what we've been, you know, going through in our Bible study on, on Wednesday nights that, you know, what, and I, you know, I shouldn't say that for when people are listening to this uh, on the podcast, because they'll think that maybe the theology pit does a, a Bible study podcast. And I, I don't, it's just straight theology uh, in my church, my, my personal Bible study that I do. We're going through Galatians. Um, but, you know, you, you look at that and that's the problem that the Galatian church had, that they were replacing one law for another law. Okay, well, what was that other law? Well, it's what they built around Christ. It's this type of things that you have to do, this, this type of mentality that, you know, it's it's what God wants, and then this is what we're going to do because this is what God wants, and therefore we are justified. That's how it works. That's a natural flow. That's a natural understanding. That's a natural thing to come out of what we've been taught, what, uh, 
scripture has said, that whole, you know, narrative in, in what we're, I, I don't find it to be unreasonable for people to think that way. I find it to be incomplete. I find it to be, you know, wrong, but it's not, it's not a damnable heresy. It's not like it's, you know, something that where you lose your salvation on, that'd be ridiculous. If I thought that, then I would totally, you know, submarine torpedo my entire belief system of justification by the faithfulness of Christ alone. Like it's, you know, it's something that I, I necessarily can't hold to. I just look at that and say, yeah, you're wrong. You know, I, I, well, I, I would say that you're not completely wrong. Like it's 100% wrong. I'm just saying that your emphasis is in the wrong place. Yeah. We want to do those, those good things. We want to have good works. That's what shows our faith, but it has nothing to do with our justification has everything to do with our sanctification It has to do with salvation, but not in making us righteous before God. We, there's nothing we can do for that. That is a past tense thing that has already taken place and it has covered what Christ has done for you, the whole recapitulation understanding of the atonement. So if we continue on here uh, in the, the confession, um, we get to, and you know what? I don't think I'm getting to the governmental view. <laughs> I'm so sorry about that. I, you know, I, maybe I'll just throw a little quick teaser in there and I'll get on the next, uh, pit there. But, um, when we go to the, uh, the, the sacraments there and we look at baptism, okay. In, um, what is it? Chapter 23, section three on baptism. It says this baptism is the first public and sacred rite of the new Testament by which all who belong to the covenant were engrafted or incorporated. And incorporated is an important word because um, the, the corporate salvation is something we will need to talk about, not necessarily with the governmental view, but I've already touched on it a lot, and I'm just going to kind of bring it back up and say, here's where we see this. But I think it's an important view and an important distinction to make here. Um but, you know, it was incorporated into the church by the solemn washing with water without distinction of age or gender and initiated into the worship of God. For this, they were emerged or submerged. Okay, this is so this is already the understanding of, in 1621 that you have to go under the water. It's not going to be a sprinkling uh, or washed in water. So it means it can be a sprinkling. But some people held on to this and said, no, nope, it's got to be this way. Uh, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and that by a symbolic sign and sacred token, they were confirmed concerning all the gracious will of God towards them, just as the filth of their bodies is washed away by water. Here's the important part. So they themselves were purged within by the blood and spirit of Christ. If they do not make this gracious covenant void through their own fault. Okay. So, you are purged and you are cleansed by Christ. Okay, this is a gratia infusa. There's something coming into you that is cleansing you and that is changing you. And as long as you don't void this through your own fault and most fully delivered from the guilt of all their sins and are f and finally we granted and finally were granted the glorious immortality and eternal happiness of the sons of God. So, if you have been baptized where there is grace being infused in you and it is making you more Christ-like and you are then savable, you are then able, the, the action is located within you to continue on. You are justified and you're in your sanctification process, but 
you can lose not just your sanctification, but and sanctification is you know setting apart from. Not only can you not you can lose that, but you can also lose your justification. You can totally void it because of this covenant that you are making by saying, "Yes, I will fulfill this covenant. I will do these things." And therefore, by doing it, I'm assuring my salvation. Okay, this is where Arminianism begins. Now, like I said before, not Arminian, uh, Arminians believe all this stuff, but you can see where people from, and that's obviously a very Anabaptistly influenced um, uh, concept right there. Um, you could see where the different traditions and the different influences are. The fact that he's dealing with these things is Calvinistic. Okay. He's dealing with what the Calvinists were saying. He is understanding the language of Martin Luther, but not understanding the implications of what Martin Luther said, which I don't fault him for. He's understanding the Zwinglian responsibility that is there. He's understanding the corporate necessity that the humanists and the scholastics held to that Luther in a way rejected. Okay. Because he said that they could err where they were saying, no, he's holding to the Anabaptists that are saying, no, it's, it's individual. And there is a, a righteous walking way, a holiness way that we are to behave. And if you're not, then that's problematic and you can walk away. So there has to be some type of free will that you have. If you have the ability to do these things, then you are responsible for it. And someone once said that the word responsible means able to respond. If you are held responsible, that means that you are able to actually respond to it. So when you put all that together, a lot of this stuff makes sense to what, um, you know, Arminius writes. And whenever you get into churches where they say, you know, oh, well, he backslid, so he's not a Christian anymore. Well, that's what makes somebody a Christian the way that they behave. It is a different understanding and it is a separate understanding of what the gospels portray and what uh, Luther explained. And it does violence to the doctrine of justification by faith, because if you are justified, that means that you are made righteous. You are righteous. It is as if you did everything perfectly. Okay. You if you are represented by Christ, it's as if he did everything perfectly for you. You would really have to throw out the recapitulation view of the atonement because that didn't matter. It didn't matter that Christ lived at every, you know, represented you at every um, part of life, you know, growing and um, you know, being born, growing, learning, dying, like every, you know, doing all that for you, actually being your federal head. That kind of has to go out the window because it's unimportant. What is important is that Christ died for you and that Christ, you know, died on the cross. And, and what was the reason for that? And that's why people then looking at this and reading this and start taking these different parts and moving in different directions with, with each one of them, but stressing them, stressing that you have to be baptized. Um, 
I asked a pastor of, I think, a disciple of Christ Church one time uh, who stressed baptism so much, believer's baptism, that I said, well, what would happen if you, you know, gave your life to Christ at, at church and then, you know, you went to be baptized and, you know, you went somewhere to baptize them and you walked out and they were hit by a bus and killed? Would they be saved? And he was like, no, they would not be saved. You need to have a place right then and right there and do it. And some people will do it in their bathtubs. They, it's no, you have to be because this has to take place, these type of things. And you say, well, isn't that a work? No, it's not a work because we're doing it by faith. It's a faith. And, and, you know, so it's like, well, how are you defining faith? Is faith, you know, anything that is ordained by God for you to do, for you to work, you know, well, we're supposed to work out our salvation. Yeah, we are. But does that mean justification? You know, are you really breaking these things apart? And what's the difference between what you're doing and what the Roman Catholic Church is doing and has done? How is that any different methodologically? It seems that it is just more refined in the way that you're understanding it. But it's still no less the exact same thing. There is no uh, distinction between the two, even though they would get mad because, again, you know, they would say, well, you need to hold up a red piece of paper and the Catholics say you need to hold up a blue piece of paper. And, you know, well, you're both holding a paper. What are you talking about? Yes, but ours is this color. It's like, OK, come on now. You know, that's where it starts getting a, a little bit ridiculous in that aspect of it. Just real quick. Um, the governmental view is similar to the moralist view, and but it's the mere opposite of the moralist view. And remember, the moralist view was that Christ was a good moral example to show us how we should be completely obedient to God and obedient to the point of death, where Jesus Christ went on the cross and it was out of love and respect for the Father. And because of that, we need to look to God in a loving way and say, and look at what Jesus did and say, behold the man, look at what Jesus did. You know, yes, I want to be like that. And out of love, I am going to come to God and I am going to, to be because Jesus sits on the right hand. I will be with God too. It's going to be the opposite of that. We'll get to it on the next Theology Pit. I promise. Um, I'll, rec- I'll try and record it this weekend. So, uh, hey, visit me, um, Theology Pit, on Facebook, or you can email me, Samson at SamsonStick.com, or visit me, SamsonStick.com. Thanks. It's now time to close down the pit. <laughs>